Thank you, James and Aaron, for reading the Word of God for us. Yes, they kind of represented what we are talking about today, especially what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. Uh, it's so good. Uh, as a church, we have been talking about what it means to follow Jesus. In the fall and spring, we have been doing that through the book of Mark. And today, as they just read it for us, we are going to do that today. In the first account, as you heard already, children come to Jesus, but disciples block them. And Jesus said, why do you block them? The children belong to the kingdom of God. They come just as they are. And the second account that we saw, uh, there will be a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus with, hey, Jesus, here's my qualification. Here's my resume. Am I good enough? And Jesus says, that one, cut it. The two great juxtaposition that we see in this account, through that, we will consider a few realities here. First, what does it mean to truly belong? So first, we'll talk about qualification to belong. And secondly, our desire and our poor attempt to belong. We all want to belong, yet the way we go about it is not quite right. And lastly, what's the hindrance to true belonging? So qualification to belong, our desire and attempt to belong, and hindrance to true belonging. Let's dive in right away, shall we? So first account that we saw here, first, hearing the first account, Jesus' disciples are blocking children coming to Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and rebukes them by saying, verse 14, When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God belongs to a child. What does Jesus mean by that? What's the qualification of this belonging? It's to have an attitude like a child. Jesus further explains in verse 15, Surely I tell you, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So church, let's examine that today. If you have been studying with us the book of Mark thus far, you have heard about children quite a bit. And what does Jesus really mean when he said be ch like a child? Let's examine what it's not first. Uh, does Jesus mean then uh, we should be childish no there's difference between childish and being child alike and that's what he calls us to do now does jesus mean then child children they are perfect well if you have been parents you clearly know that's not the case you love them and you ugh, there are things that they do they are self-centered creature you constantly have to remind them that this world is not all about them. You have to teach that way. Then being a childlike attitude, does Jesus mean then child are, those children are innocent? No, that's not the case either. Jesus doesn't mean that they are sinless or innocent because uh, David says it in his confession psalm, Psalm 51, when he commits adultery to Bathsheba, 51.5, David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
We all have sinned through Adam. None of us are innocent. Then what in the world is Jesus saying here? Kingdom of God belongs to a person like a child, a childlike attitude. What does he mean by that? Let's examine there. A few things that we learn by observing children. First, you have heard the sermon a couple weeks ago, and you kind of intuitively know it as well. The first characteristic that we can learn from children is that they know that they are dependent and they are helpless on their own. Uh, they don't come to Jesus with all the qualification, but they realize their helplessness and they come without any wearing facade or without any cleanup. They are helpless and dependent. That's the first attitude that Jesus is requiring of us. This is really helpful for those who may be on the verge line of exploring Jesus, but not quite a full put full trust yet. You say, but I'm not good enough this. I am this or that. You don't know what I've done in the past week. That is essentially what Jesus is requiring of you to have that helpless, dependent attitude. God, I can't. So I come to you just as we are. And secondly, what does Jesus mean by the childlike attitude? This perhaps we don't think about it too much, church. But unless children went through a very traumatic childhood and upbringing, unless that, God forbid, usually they expect to be welcomed and accepted for who they are, right? They come, I mean, it would be really bad if children come and say, hey, Dad, I didn't get to score three goals in a soccer tournament today. Can I still eat dinner with you? No, children don't do that. They don't come because of my qualifications. Can you accept me? No, they just come fully expect to be welcomed and loved. It would be a dysfunctional relation if a child says such things like that because true relationship between parents and children are relational, not merit-based, what they've earned. And for us adults, church, it's pretty hard to swallow. Uh, because we live in a society, we feel like we have to earn our belonging. We have to come with all the qualification and resume. This is very contrary to what Jesus is requiring of us. And yet, this childlike attitude, these two must go together. In one sense, yes, it's good to expect to be welcomed and loved by Jesus, but without helpless, the dependent attitude, you will approach Jesus as if you're a king. I am great. You better take me who I am. I'm awesome. No, what God is requiring of you is to humble yourself. But on the other side, if you're just humbling yourself, you're dependent, you know you're inadequate, but you don't come to Jesus, you'll be hopeless, isolated, and falling in great despair by own, your own sin and your merit. Realize I am nobody. There's nobody to save. But you realize your dependency, your inadequacy, but at the same time, you come just as you are. That's exactly what Jesus is meaning by be childlike attitude, come to Jesus. Uh, many of you know that for the past couple of months, I had my sister Joe and my nephew Tim stayed with me. They left, went back to Korea this past week. And while they are here, my seven-year-old boy and nephew, Tim, 
I don't know what he did. Uh, one day I was trying to come to church, and then my wooden floor is supposed to be color like this. Also, they're all, it's pretty white. Like, what is going on? There were a lot of white residue. And then I f- figured out what happened was that uh, my nephew, seven-year-old boy, Tim, launched a fire extinguisher in the house. <laughs> and then he tried to cover up by bringing all the white residue, put it in the corner, by putting three pieces of Kleenex on top of it. <laughs> and wow, he had audacity to hide like that. Like, Tim, what did you do? I asked him. I was like, well, I was, he was trying to give me a bunch of excuses. I was like, that's okay. We all make mistakes. But I wish you could have told me that because we all make mistakes. It's okay. So we had a lot of conversation like that. And there are sometimes a wall in my hole in a wall. We all make mistakes. That's okay. Let's talk about it. But there are cases in time that either Joey or I had to really discipline him. Uh, that was sometimes I was worried, oh man, is he going to be okay? Is he seemed really remorseful and tearful? Is he feeling like, can he really still approach me or Joey? Well, maybe it's just a Tim's temperament or what? Five minutes later, he forgets it. Uncle Jim, can we go out play soccer now? I'm like, are you okay? I'm like, what? What, what did you do? I'm totally fine. It doesn't matter what we tell them. Yes, he may be remorseful for a bit, but he still fully expects to be welcomed and loved because he knows that relationship we have, whether it be with his parents or it be with me, it's not meritocracy. He doesn't expect, oh, Uncle Jin, I did everything right, so you must love me. No. Joey loves him. His dad loves him. I love him, my nephew, because just who he is. And that's so hard for us because oftentimes the qualification that Jesus requires of us to come to Jesus just as we are, we constantly feel like we have to measure up, constantly feel like we have to bring our resume in the presence of him to be accepted. But Shelton, lay down your resume, lay down your facade, come to Jesus just as you are, broken, wounded, dependent, helpless. That's what Jesus is requiring of you. If you are not there today, I pray that by grace of God, he will humble you day by day. And if you have been humbled, but you just don't dare to approach Jesus, come to Jesus. Here, disciples are the one that blocks children, but Jesus said, kingdom of God belongs to those children who come to me. Come just as you are. Jesus is ready to welcome you. The second thing we learn in this passage is there's desire, yet very poor attempt to truly belong. While children come to Jesus without any qualification, uh, they come to Jesus. There's also another example we see about a rich young ruler who does not come to Jesus like children, but with, he comes with great PowerPoint presentation. These are things that I have done, Jesus. Am I good enough? And Jesus said, no, you will not make it. Now, when you think about it, we live our lives in quest to find true belonging. I mean, that's kind of one of the deepest part of our desire. Whether it be our expression of ourselves in social media, the way we express ourselves, or whether anxiety we terribly feel when we walk into a new school year or a new church or a new social environment, 
essentially stems from our desire for belonging and yet fear of rejection. We feel great angst. We desperately want to belong, but we are fearful. Are they really going to accept me for who I am? The great anxiety stems from that. Um, Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says this. This is true for all ways of relationship. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. What it means by that is, to be loved is good, but we have doubt in our mind. Would they really accept me? Am I going to really belong? Are they going to take us who, they, who we are, just as who we are, if they really know who we are? So it's comforting that they love me, but they don't know me. It's superficial. On the other side, he says, to be known and yet not loved is our greatest fear. To the degree that you are known to somebody, when they reject you, oh, that will hurt you. That will hurt you. Whether you're rejected by your parents, your loved one, to the degree of their relationship, you're known yet rejected by it, that is our greatest fear. But he says, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, like a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. This is kind of belonging and acceptance we desire. And what's the ultimate form of belonging? That's what this rich young ruler is seeking in this case. He comes to Jesus in ultimate form. How can I belong to the eternal life? How can I inherit this eternal life? While he desires a true acceptance and belonging in the ultimate form of eternal life, the quest for eternity that we all have in our mind, but he comes with a very wrong attitude. See, when you read Matthew account or Luke account, Matthew account tells us that he was really wealthy in 1922, and Luke identifies him as a ruler. So it means he was both a very wealthy and very powerful. And he comes to Jesus, started on his way. A man ran up to him and fell on his knee before him. Good teacher, verse 17. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You can see this man was respected, powerful, wealthy, young. You can tell him one of the go-getter in the world. I mean, he has made it. He killed it. I mean, he's just he's on the top of the ladder. He's getting promotion in his work. He's at the top of the ladder, well-respected, liked by many people. So you can say he's an achiever. Hey, I belong. I've achieved. I've made it. But now I'm in my ultimate quest. How do I belong? Maybe I need to work hard. I've made it. How do I belong in this eternal life? Yet how does Jesus answer to this rich young ruler's question? Verse 18, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. What is Jesus really saying here? Is Jesus saying that why do you call me good? Is Jesus denouncing his morality? Is Jesus saying, actually, I'm not the moral psych? No. Uh, that's not what Jesus means by If you continue to read here, Jesus asks a bunch of questions in verse 19 and verse 20. When you look at that, what does he say here? Hey, uh, Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the young ruler says, teacher, I've done it all. 
But then what Jesus says, but one thing you lack. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, hey, when you try to come to me, you call me good teacher, when you tell me you have been good, when you try to come to Jesus with your morality and goodness, you will always lack something. One thing you lack, you might have not killed anybody, you might have honored your parents, you might have not stole anything. Yes, you've done it all. Your resume is spotless, flawless. But don't call me good. No one is good. You cannot approach me with your goodness. You cannot approach me. The kingdom of God does not belong to those who are just moral. If you approach Jesus based upon your merit, Shelton, you will always lack something. So here Jesus is showing actually the danger of goodness and morality. Because often that's how we want to approach Jesus. Jesus, I've cleaned up. I have postured myself. Do you accept me? To the degree that we come to Jesus with our morality or even knowledge of Bible or career achievement, that much further off you will be in belonging to the true kingdom of God. See, we looked at it just the previous account. Children come helpless just as they are. But here, this guy has made it. He's been very successful. He comes with all the qualification. And Jesus said, you think your morality and goodness save you? There will be always something that you lack. That's not what inherits eternal life. So, Chelton, let me ask you a question today. What are things that you say, because I am this or that, I belong to Jesus? Fill the blank. For those of you perhaps who are searching for Jesus, for those of you who are here for the first time hearing this message about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you say, oh, well, you might answer honestly, well, I think if I'm nice enough, I belong to the kingdom of God. I hope by now it's been revealed that that's not the case. Your goodness will not save you but you come helpless, broken, wounded, just as you are. That's what you need. But for also many of us, let me speak to that. You say, what, and you just ask, what are the things that because I'm this and that, I belong to the kingdom of God? Well, I know the answer. I've been church block enough. It's through Jesus what Jesus Christ is on the cross. So I know this is not me. It's so easy for us to just brush it off because we know the Sunday school answer it's because Jesus died for me on the cross. I belong to him, not based on my merit and all that. So let me press in a little further. Is that really how you go about your life? You intellectually know it, but the way you go about deserving the kingdom of God in your mind is very different. If you really want to know how you operationally actually go about deserving the kingdom of God, measure how you judge others just like disciples did in the first text. Disciples' mind, children are insignificant. You shouldn't come to Jesus. Only Jesus has other priority. So for them, children are not worthy for the kingdom of God because they are insignificant. In their assumption, kingdom of God, Jesus is for those who are significant. So whatever metrics you use to judge others, take time to think about whether that is what you functionally believe how you deserve the kingdom of God. Uh, let me might as well go there, church. If you judge others based on their political affiliation, 
If you tend to think those who might vote differently think differently, they are out of the kingdom of God. You don't say, oh, it's not like they are not believers, but you know, I actually doubt their salvation. How can they think like that? If you're a Christian, you can really do that, actually, as if your voting record is what enters you into the kingdom of God. What groups do they belong? What tribes are they in? Do you judge others based on that? Some of us, especially Christians, I've seen this a lot, judge others based on their reputation and their name only. You tend to think God is more pleased with you because you have better track record and better reputation in a church. Because I am respected and recognized, I'm a little bit closer to Jesus than you. If you have that tendency, it's hard to spot that. But how do you know that if you have that kind of tendency where the good name is what's truly belonging to the kingdom of God? See, you have to go one layer deeper to realize that. See how you react when you actually drop a ball. When there's a chance that your reputation is at risk. If you quickly acknowledge your fault and move forward, that's great. But if you beat yourself up to the point of disorientation and discombobulation, oh, I cannot believe why I've done that. Oh, no, what is others going to think of me? Oh, no, this is terrible. You might care a bit too much about your name and reputation as if good name is what you need to be accepted and belong to the kingdom of God. So how do you react, actually, when you judge? When you drop a ball, do you have too much remorseful, too much discombobulation? I can't believe my reputation is at risk. You might be obsessing too much about it. You might, you might as well judge others based on that. Some of you internally say, because I have this much knowledge of God, I belong to Jesus more than others. As if the kingdom of God is only for those who win Bible trivia. Some of you say, well, I belong because I work hard. As if your work ethics will save you. What are those? All those are very poor attempts in approaching Jesus. Here, this rich young ruler comes, I haven't done this, I haven't done that, I've kept all this. But Jesus graciously says, but one thing you lack. No one is good except the Father. Your morality and your goodness, your church attendance, your giving record, how faithful you have been will not save you. But your helpless, dependent attitude coming to Jesus like children just as you are. So what qualification do you add upon today, church? To the degree that you add your own qualification to the kingdom of God, that much further you will actually be from truly belonging in the kingdom of God. You desire to belong. That's innate human desire, instinctive desire. Yet oftentimes the way we go about it is not like children. We are so meritocracy, the way we approach even Jesus. Jesus, you must love me because I've been good today. I haven't done this and that. What is that for you? So now we have been talking about what it means to really qualification, to truly belong in the kingdom of God. We desire to belong, but the way we approach God is sometimes very contractual. I've done this, therefore you take me. If you only approach Jesus as I've done this, therefore you take me, but you approach that very contractually, then Jesus cannot ask all of you because you've given him all the good. But if you come truly dependent and helpless, yet just as you are, Jesus takes you 
and Jesus can ask everything of you. That's the relationship that he's requiring of you today. Don't come to meet him at halfway as if it's a contract. That's what Jesus is confronting to this rich young ruler. So third, lastly, let's look at the hindrance to true belonging. Now, what was his hindrance to true belonging here? Not only his morality, his poor attempt. Jesus, I've done it. But for him, it was wealth. See what happened, verse 21 through 23. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciple, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, before we dive in this dilemma that we see, this hard passage, I want you to take notice of something very important. Here, this rich young ruler did not approach Jesus like Pharisees did. Let me trap you, Jesus. Let me see what you got. No, this, this rich young ruler, earnestly, this achiever, go-getter, wanted to know what the eternal life looks like. I want it, Jesus. And Jesus corrects him, but the way he corrects him, did you notice the verse 11? Jesus looked at him and loved him. Children, when God reveals something in your heart, when God gently corrects you, to the degree of your obsession of whatever that thing was, this guy, his man's face fell. Your heart will ache. It will be painful. But it's not because Jesus is a brutal dictator and monopolized you as if he's just narcissistic God. Jesus does that because he wants more of you and because he loves you. The reason why he's showing one thing you lack is not because he wants to take anything away from you, but because he loves you, because he wants you to experience eternal life, the greatest gift and reward we don't even realize we need often. So people of God, when you don't understand what God is doing in your life, when God reveals something, idolatrous desire, obsession of your heart, it's really painful. To the degree of your obsession that was, it will be that much more painful when God brings that out. But know that he's looking at you right in the eye and tell you, I love you. As a gentle surgeon, I want to draw that out, that cancer within you. Jesus is not just confronting this man out of, I got you, you got it wrong. No, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Don't waste Jesus' correction moment. There will be a lot of tears shed, a lot of heartache in those moments when God reveals something of your obsession of your heart. To this guy, it was wealth. I don't know what is for you today, whether it be wealth, romance, work, family. I don't know what that is. But when God reveals that within you, uh, don't waste that opportunity. Let him correct you. Let him confront you. He should disagree with you. If God always agrees with your logic, you don't have the God of the Bible. Know that God loves you and revealing that. He lo looked at him and loved him. Remember that. When I was going through deep darkness, this passage deeply comforted me. He loves me, so he's showing me all this. For him, it was wealth that he couldn't just let it go. See, but we got to give a little bit of benefit of doubt to this young rich ruler. In the Judaism at the time, the more favored you are, 
the more prosperous you are. That's how they people understood it. So if you are not favored by God and things like that, people understood poverty comes from that. So to him, God, I've lived for you. I've done really well. That's how I've been favored. But Jesus says, sell everything. Can you imagine this combobulation, this combobulation he must have felt? I've done it all. But Jesus, you tell me to sell everything? I thought I was favored. Well, what is going on? Wealth is money is something that Jesus talks so much about. You think so much about I do. The world tried to make sense of that. Even some Christians adapted this view as well, that the more favored you are, that much more prosperous you will be. Is that true? I'm going to tell you the truth in a minute. The world obsesses about wealth. We don't care about what the poor people have to say, but people care a whole lot about what the rich people have to say. I hear about what Bill Gates have to say, but I don't hear about what average Joe had to say. Medias don't report that. People don't care. They care about wealth, influence of people. Like rich young ruler, the world cares about only those influence are rich and wealthy. But while we don't have dive in to have dive, while we don't have time to dive in to give you a comprehensive view about all the detail, exhaustive view about money in the scripture, what I can tell you is that when you read the scripture in its entirety, without cherry-picking whatever the passage you would like, God's favor upon you has nothing to do with your prosperity or impoverishment. Scripture teaches that monies are one of those that is out of control, that comes and goes, that you ought to steward well in that. But what the Scripture is very clear and consistent, oftentimes we don't say this, but I'm going to say it out loud, what the scripture is clear, consistent about it is that wealth is a far more spiritually dangerous position to be in than poverty. I'll say that. Jesus says that rich it is a heart entered like a camel here. The wealth is far more spiritually dangerous position to be in than poverty. Why is that? Why is that? We just learned Jesus wants the childlike attitude, dependent helpless when you have all the money in your account you don't feel helpless you're pretty well helped you're not dependent you're pretty independent you can do whatever you want we don't come just as we are we, rather than going to jesus just as we are expecting to be embraced and welcomed because we're helpless and dependent we go to money i got enough money to save that can be a great detractor for you so yes, Scripture does not have a rose-color view about money and wealth, but what is clear is that if you are relatively well-off, all of us, we need to watch out. In your prosperity, what is God really trying to teach you? Having laid down the background here, what is Jesus saying? Now, verse 21, let me expound it a little bit. Go sell everything you have and give that to poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, does Jesus mean then that if you have any savings in your account, here, Jesus tells him, sell everything. If you have any 401k saved for your retirement, you are disqualified to belong in the kingdom of God. Is that what Jesus is saying? Go sell everything you have and give to poor. Well, it can possibly be, actually, because when you study, such as Luke 19, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Zacchaeus tells Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to sell half of my possession and give to others. Not whole, half. 
And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. When you read John 3, there's also very wealthy man, Nicodemus, uh, talking about salvation conversation. Jesus doesn't say a thing about finance, but Jesus says, you must be born again to have eternal life. So this can't just be the how much money you give away to inherit the eternal life, but rather, so it can be money itself that constitutes belonging and salvation. Rather, what Jesus is addressing here is your heart attitude, your obsession. Money itself is not a bad thing, church. You can do great things for the Lord with your money. But if it has become your trust, if it has become the thing that makes you feel like you have the place in the world, if it becomes your identifying factor, defining factor, if you feel like you are somebody because you have that money, then you've lost. Money has become very poor substitute God. And don't just say, oh, I'm poor, so this is not me. No, that's just the comparison game that you're playing. You always tend to play someone who's a little bit more than you do. You tend to play and compare your house with someone whose house is a little bit nicer than you. Oh, I am poor. No, it's for all of us. So do you realize the potency of money? For this rich young ruler, it was money that grabbed a hold of him today. But for you today, Chilton, if you were to fall flat at the feet of Jesus, what would Jesus say one thing you must leave behind? Can you think about that? Is that money for you? Leave that behind. It's not worth it. The true belonging you desire, you think money will give you? The true belonging to be fully known and fully accepted is what Jesus grants you. What is the one thing that Jesus would ask you? Leave that behind that you just are not willing to lay down. Is that your career that you're desperately holding on to? Is that your certain retirement plan, future plan? You're like, this is exactly what I want. My beach house. Is that your obsession? Is that, it could very well be money too. I just need this much money. I, one million, I exactly need it, then I'll be fine. What is that for you? Perhaps the romance? What is that for you that Jesus says, one thing you lack? Will you leave that behind today? Today we have examined what it means to truly belong in the kingdom of God. You desperately try to hold on and find the primary meaning of life through wealth, through success, through romance, even through your family, how well your family are doing. But when we try to enter the kingdom of God through all those, through our merit, through our goodness, through our qualification, through our resume, you are out. What Jesus is requiring of us to humble ourselves and come to Jesus just as we are. Chelton, in the end, that's how Jesus saved us. At the cross of Jesus Christ, he didn't die for you based on your future qualification, your future resume. Okay, I'm going to die for Jin because he's not going to lie this day because he's going to be good. No, he fully knew that I'll still mess up. But he still died for me. He died helplessly on the cross, and he saved the helpless one like me so then I can approach him. Jesus, all I can offer you is my moral bankruptcy. All I can offer is my empty hand. I am broken. I am wounded. I know, Jesus, that only I belong to the kingdom of God based on what you have done. But I tend to, I want to deserve the kingdom of God. I judge others based on their name. 
based on their reputation, based on fill the blank. How do you judge others? God, I feel like that's how I deserve. I only want to associate with significant people just like disciples did. Children, don't come to Jesus. Jesus saw through all my sins and failure, and he still chose to die on the cross for me. And he tells me, Jin, you don't have to store up all the riches and wealth in this world. I have given everything you need. Will you come to me just as you are? Children, what is that thing for you? If Jesus were to look at you straight in the eye, one thing you lack, leave behind, come follow me. What is the one obsession of the future plan, wealth, children, your future plan, whatever, what is that one thing for you? Will you lay that down and surrender to Jesus? Jesus, even this I don't know, but I come just as I am. Take me because I know the beauty of the gospel. You saw my bankruptcy, saw my failure, but you still bled and died for me. Jesus, the attractiveness of this world does not lure me anymore. You are more fairer, more beautiful than all the things of this world. Can your heart say that? You can intellectually, but really think upon, dwell on it, and see what Jesus reveals you. If Jesus reveals that one thing, it must go this way. Will you surrender to him and come to Jesus just as you are and see more beautiful Jesus than any other things? If you just can't quite do that, just sit at the cross, dwell in it until your heart really begins to say, Jesus, You are truly more beautiful, more fair than all the wealth that I can store up in this world. To the degree that you are moved by what Christ has done, you will be able to come to wide open arms of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we confess and acknowledge that it's so hard to unlearn it. God, I want to deserve the kingdom of God. I mean, I, I seek belonging in my life. We all seek belonging, whether it be belonging to the circle of friends. Sometimes we want to associate and belong to a successful group of people. We all are longing for belonging. But God, you, through Jesus Christ, granted us the ultimate belonging that our heart longed for. And you tell us today to come like children, helpless, dependent, just as we are. But, oh, Lord, somehow I want to deserve that. I want to earn that so often. And I judge others, extend my judgment on others based on my own standard. Will you forgive us, oh, Lord? And will you cause us to unlearn that habit? Whether it be the morality, goodness that we think we need. Whether it be our obsession of wealth, health, romance, whatever that it is. Help us to lay that down in the presence of you. And God, as we gaze upon the beauty of the cross, I pray that we will see how beautiful you are that cause us to turn around from our obsession. And oh Lord, maybe you are doing the heart surgery right now in this moment to somebody. God, will you be gentle toward them, gracious toward them? You looked at him and you loved him. Just like you've done that to rich young ruler, I pray that you do that to somebody's heart today. And I trust that you are doing that, O Lord, and cause them to turn back to you and look how beautiful you are and help us to lay down our good deeds and morality and follow you, come broken, as messed up up as we are. Help us to see you that much more beautiful, Jesus. 
In your precious name we pray, amen.